0: Hey all you beautiful people, welcome to episode 13 of the Bartcast, it's your boy Hobart coming to you on this beautiful Thursday, August 6th, Um, I've been kind of away for the last week or so, I went up uh, on a backpacking trip up in Desolation Wilderness with some homies and uh, it was just amazing i have not seen that many stars in forever and you know the milky way was bright there was tons of shooting stars and just a lot of good hanging and and really really needed came back feeling super refreshed and i'm actually taking off again next week with my family to go do some camping as well so Uh, Lots of outdoor time for the Hobart in in this uh, summer, which is what summer's for. My guest today is an incredible human being. Um, If you ever wondered what goes into uh, creating your own business, I know last episode we kind of talked a little bit about you know, that process of creating something. Um, And this is kind of along that thematic line. Um, Today I have the lovely Megan Bell, a.k.a. Margin's Wine, um, to talk about what it's like to start a winery from scratch and what it's like as a woman to break through into this industry that is so male-dominated with such a history of that sort of um, those sorts of barriers being put up. And she definitely gets real about what the struggles have been for her and what the joy has been and just what it's like to run and found and operate uh, a small natural winery. And I know that this episode definitely got me thirsty for a glass of red. And so I would highly recommend for this episode, you know, while you're listening to this intro, if you have the means, go ahead and uh, fill yourself up a little glass, whether it's white or red. Uh, You know, choose your own pairing. And uh, this is definitely one that's meant to be enjoyed with uh, a glass um, of wine at your side. Uh, Had a blast doing this. I was really grateful that... Uh, Megan was willing to come on and tell her story, and uh, I hope you all find it as fascinating as I did. So, without further ado, please let me introduce to you my friend Megan Bell on this episode 13 of the Bartcast. Great to hear from you. What a surprise! got like mad swag in your breakfast game
1: <laughs> oh yeah just the same bowl of oatmeal every day since the beginning of
0: quarantine same bowl now now with your oatmeal what's your strategy are you like a are you a raisin girl do you go nuts brown sugar milk what 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 is a what is does megan bell raisin or oatmeal look like uh
1: definitely a raisin girl raisins are a constant every day and a hundred percent no nuts i I just buy nuts in my food
0: but but that I guess that figures raisins because you're all about them grapes, huh
1: um, I haven't actually considered that before, but yes, exactly
0: <laughs> that's awesome um and how's how's your day going so far what what have you been up to thus far?
1: um it's a much better day than yesterday uh yesterday, I was hauling some tanks on my trailer, and it was a disaster. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyone that's hauled weight before knows that there are just some days where everything goes really, really horribly, and it's dangerous, and it takes forever to go like five miles, and uh, yeah, yesterday was one of those days for me, but today I took the day off, except for computer work, so I, I haven't left my house today. And I read my book for a while in the hot tub, and uh, now I'm drinking some wine and getting to talk to you. So today is uh, it's a new day, much better than.
0: Damn hot tub and wine! I'm you're making me real jealous right now. I wish I uh, had a glass of red to sip on. I'm I got, I'm making do with black tea and honey.
1: Oh, nice. Still, still delicious <laughs> Just not the same
0: what uh that's awesome so um are you down in santa cruz
1: yeah i'm i'm santa cruz and um yeah yesterday i was hauling tanks because i'm actually in the middle of a really exciting time for my company which is Um, I'm in the middle of the process of permitting my own winery space, um, which is really close, I think, to being finished at least, Uh, but we will see. Um, it's It's a stressful situation because permitting spaces to make alcohol is a lot more challenging than just like opening up a non-alcohol-related business in a storefront. You need a bunch of county permitting, and you have to worry about um, the process water, the wastewater, what you're going to do with that, and you have the whole state kind of watching you, which, of course, is good for environmental protections, but it's a lot of red tape, and uh, we're getting real close to harvest here at the end of July, and the space still is not approved yet, so it's it's mm. making me a little...
0: Uh, Nervous. Little little bit of a leap of faith?
1: It's the biggest leap of faith I've ever taken. I'm not totally sure what I'm going to do if it doesn't work out. And um, I'm usually like a really thorough planner and not a leap taker. Mm-hmm. So being in this position is a little foreign to me, but um, it really seemed like the right way to go in this circumstance, it was an opportunity that I couldn't pass up. And because of COVID, then the County was closed for almost two months. And and that's actually why I'm so delayed right now. So it wasn't really my fault, but uh, I'm having to deal with the repercussions.
0: Well, we'll all, we'll all send you uh, much serendipity energy in the coming weeks in support of this uh, most worthy of wineries uh which is what we're going to get into today i'm super excited to hear this story and uh learn a bit about um more about your wine company and i guess i just want to start by telling the story of like kind of how we met and how we uh how we bumped into each other recently which was super sweet um I remember meeting. Yeah, I believe you. Uh, you were part of like a a day camp with my my brother Chester and his wife Bree in Point Reyes, right?
1: Yeah, it was actually a sleepaway camp, so a whole step above.
0: Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Even more gangster than I thought. Um, yeah, but and you were you? I forget you were at their wedding too, right?
1: No, I don't. I don't think I was. Okay. I don't, I can't remember if I knew them when they were married already or not. At this point, it's been so long ago. I think
0: you did, because they did the camp before the wedding. Okay. Um, But it's funny, because not only me, but my I think my my family, my parents, too, just injected you into that experience. Like, I I was telling my mom that I was having you on, and she had a memory from the wedding. So... Uh, whether or not you actually were there physically, your spirit was well represented.
1: Um, I really hope I wasn't there because I don't remember, <laughs> but I did have a major head injury two years ago.
0: Oh so, no. like,
1: if that's why I've forgotten, or if I've forgotten, that is why.
0: <laughs> Can you, do you feel like sharing like the story of that and what that, what was that, what was that about?
1: Yeah. Um, I was, I was learning how to kite surf actually. So I get I get super seasick, and I live in Santa Cruz, and everyone's always doing water sports, and anytime I would try to go surfing, I would just end up throwing up after, and it was kind of miserable. And I thought, okay, well, like, maybe if I'm kite surfing, like, and have more control over movement, and I'm not floating in the water, I'm just kind of surfing the waves, maybe I'll be okay. So that was my inspiration to try to learn. And then in my third lesson while I was still learning to fly like a big kite on the sand, um, I ended up getting carried away by the kite and slammed into the sand and, uh, lost consciousness and got a really severe concussion. So that was was the last time that I kite surfed and I've just decided that I'm going to be a lifelong boogie boarder.
0: There you go. I, I keep coming back to that too. It like boogie boards, uh, Kind of underrated as far as aquatic flotation sport gear.
1: Yeah, so much fun. So much fun. So easy for all, mm-hmm. safer, yeah. <laughs> like what's not to love?
0: Right. I know I have this distinct memory of going to Maui with my one of my best friends and uh, we would hit up a bunch of beaches and we just had the best time boogie boarding these like massive waves and just like, you know, I I, I never quite – broke through, you know, the way that a lot of my friends did growing up with surfing in California. The water was just too cold for me to get out that early in the morning, which was ironic because my name's Hobie and a lot of people just assume I'm a surfer because I have a surf name and I'm kind of a bro. But, uh, but yeah, I, you know, the, the, the most committed I ever got to surfing was actually when I was living in Santa Cruz and, uh, I was living with this like semi pro boogie boarder and he would like stand up on his boogie board and we would always go to like uh pleasure point and surf second peak and, uh, on the East side. And, um, so that was like, I was a skateboarder growing up and that was like when like during that was the period in my life when like the skateboarding, like riding half pipe skills were just starting to transfer into the surfing skills. Um, but then kinda of had a following out falling out with the the boogie boarder dude and uh ended up moving out and uh and and my surf career was cut tragically short as a result.
1: So tragic. <laughs> that happened to you.
0: Yeah. You know, there's it's like people try to get me like excited about it again and like my mom is a big stand up paddle boarder and she goes out like every day with my stepdad and Bolinas. But uh mm-hmm. I just have so many interests. It's like, I don't know if I can juggle that extra ball. Like I love surfing when I go to Hawaii and it's warm out and I'll, I'll go from time to time. But like, I never quite caught the itch in the way that, um, a lot of my friends did. Yeah. Um, yeah. well, that's cool. <laughs> I'm glad that you that your, uh, head has allowed you to achieve such greatness uh, despite the the kite surfing stuff, my my uncle's like in his fifties and he's a kite surfer, and it always looked like the most fun sport to me. But I've I've yet to try it.
1: Yeah, I I think I'd be interested in learning again, um, like on the Delta where it's super, like you said, super warm mm. and like it's windy, but it's not like gale force winds like on the coast north of Santa Cruz where I was learning, and it's freezing and it just right. It feels dangerous, so mm-hmm. yeah, maybe give that a try again one day, but for now I'm gonna stick to wine.
0: <laughs> wine and boogie board shredding.
1: Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, so so yeah, we met each other when I was working in Point Reyes mm-hmm. and your family lived in Ballinas, and we were there all the time since it's on the weekend since it's nearby. And um then we hadn't seen each other for like 10 years.
0: Right. Yeah. It was a solid, solid decade.
1: Yeah. And, and then uh, we randomly, a month ago-ish, ran into each other on the river in Arroyo Seco. Yeah. When we were both staying with friends. I know.
0: It was so funny. I I remember I, you were in like a, a floaty, and I remember looking over and being like, she looks really familiar. And then I was like... I like, I couldn't remember your name, but I like knew your Instagram handle <laughs> and, yeah. and we were like, started talking and, uh, and then all of a sudden I was just like margins wine. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you're like, Hobie. And I was like, damn it. She remembers my name. <laughs> and then, uh, uh maybe remember- I took a stab at it. Maybe I guessed Megan. I forget. Or maybe you told me. I'm happy to go by margins wine. Margins wine. Um, yeah, it was
1: a very serendipitous meeting.
0: Totally, and yeah, and it was it was nice because you know, it was, uh, me and I went up with me and my buddy Lesh and we were just having this nice, peaceful weekend away from the bay, getting out in nature, and then to get some uh, just fresh faces, fresh energy uh, while we were eating our canned fish. It was a it was a good, uh, bumping into each other vibe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I want to hear, can you, uh, if you're ready to dive in, I want to hear the heroic tale of, of your, co- your company. And, you know, I'm sure you've told it many times now being this, this founder, but can we start at the beginning and just take me through like, how does uh how does one go about in uh in starting a winery where how did this idea manifest for you
1: yeah um I have to say that before I start if I had known what it was going to take to do this I probably wouldn't have done it so i don't want that to be uninspirational but uh, I, I'm sure a lot of people that have started things feel that way it's just it's a lot more than you anticipate Um, especially for me because I started my company when I was 25 so and not that I'm that much older than that now now I'm 30 but um, you know just being someone that founded something without a lot of life experience I think definitely played into being kind of unaware of everything that uh, this would entail, but uh, nevertheless, I so I started this company with a Kickstarter mm. um, about five years ago, and I wanted to make Chenin Blanc, which is a white wine grape that is native to the Loire Valley in France, and that is somewhere where I did a internship when I was learning how to make wine. Okay, and. I loved working there not only because I got to drink so many different chenin which is a grape that I had never had before in America
0: okay
1: um, but also because I I loved the working culture and the people that I worked with and um by working culture I, I mean like getting to relax a lot of the time like getting <laughs> a 2 hour lunch period and like drinking while working and just like a generally chill vibe, which is the opposite of working in wine production in the United States Mm -hmm. and other like new world wine countries I've worked in um, New Zealand. There's it's, it's a working culture, you know, like go, 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 as fast as you can, like assembly line. um, Like we need to get this done. Everyone's kind of gruff and negative and miserable. Mm. And that was, an aspect of wine production that almost made me quit working in wine production in in my early twenties, because like I I didn't want to be around that type of work environment. And also I was almost always the only woman working. So Uh. I automatically got kind of blamed for whatever was going wrong or slowly or whatever. And, And, you know, most of the time, no one says this directly, but it's just another type of, like, microaggression where you, you can feel that everyone thinks it's your fault. And mm. that that That's tends to good. fall off the, on the women in, in these production-related industries that don't have a lot of women working in them historically. So, yeah, it sucked. It mm. sucked at the
0: beginning, and um, that can lasted really... Can I ask a- you real quick? I'm just I had a question yeah. come up for me, which was... Just to take to just to pause and go back real quick. How did you find yourself working in France in the first place? Like what did what, what uh prompted you to go learn how to make wine in France?
1: So I studied wine chemistry and grape growing in college. So last time I saw you, or the second to last time, when I was still working at that camp mm-hmm. that I love, my summer camp during the summers. I was already studying wine at that time. Where did you go to school? I went to Davis, and I wasn't um, necessarily interested in wine, but I was interested in having a career that was outside. So that was why I decided to do winemaking, because I was under the impression at that time that that would be more financially lucrative than just um, teaching backpacking (laughs) trips but uh, I was, I was wrong. <laughs> it turns <laughs> out I um, could have just kept teaching backpacking trips, but um, So yeah, far,
0: I, I believe in you. I believe in the <laughs> lucrative, lucrivity, the lucrativeness of your, uh, yeah. of your endeavor. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Um, yeah. So the France internship was about two years after I'd graduated from college and I had a friend from college who had worked at that same domain, which is what we call a winery in mm-hmm. France. And
0: what region w- where was it in?
1: It's called the Loire Valley. So it's like in the middle of France in the, on the Western side.
0: Okay, cool.
1: And it's a, it's a very cold and rainy area, especially during the fall when I was there. So it was <laughs> <laughs> always a bit uh, miserable weather wise, but it's okay. Like Mm -hmm. we got paid in wine and that was more than enough to like make up for all of that. Yeah. Um,
0: and what what were you engaged in? Like what was your role when you, when you went out there?
1: So at that internship I was mostly picking grapes, like working vineyard crew. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I was like cleaning the press, which is the machine we use to separate the grape skins from the actual juice that comes out of the grape, and um, loading the press and monitoring the press. These are all really typical duties of a uh, um, a winemaking intern, that someone who's like still learning. Uh, recording the sugar levels and the temperatures of the fermentations every day. That helps us determine whether or not the fermentation is progressing as expected. Um, So yeah, it really the same, you make wine the same way all over the world. If, if you're in a small winery because, Mm. and and this is the realm of wine production that I've chosen to work in. So we don't use a lot of technology. We don't um, modify with the, hundred plus different additives that you're allowed to put in wine without putting it on the label. We don't use any of those, okay. um, in this type of wine production. So it really is just, uh, the process of picking the grapes and then fermenting them. That's really all there is to it. Okay. And then it becomes wine over time.
0: Gotcha. Does it, do you, uh, um, this is probably a silly question, but, um, you know, having brewed, beer in the past, um, even when I was living in Santa Cruz, does, does the type of yeast that you add, um, affect the type of wine that you get in the way that, you know, different, different beers have different yeasts?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, yes, it definitely does. However, the type of wine that I make, which is on the natural wine spectrum, Mm -hmm. um, we don't actually add any commercial yeast. We, we only use the yeast that occurs naturally on the grape skins and on the various winery equipment cool.
0: so so you're like the sourdough of wine yeah
1: <laughs> yeah yeah so so natural wine which is the sector of the wine industry that i work in is um wine made from organic grapes with nothing added and nothing taken away mm. so not filtered not fined which is a process of removing proteins that make the wine cloudy. Um, And then also no yeast or nutrients or uh, color or tannins or tartaric acid, all things that you can add to wine. um, We don't do any of them. The only thing we might do is add a little bit of sulfur dioxide, aka sulfites during that process. But other than that, our goal is to make the wine that's like the most representative of not only the vineyard but also of like the winemaking process Mm. that's something that's really important to me is to have the wine kind of taste like juice because it is juice it's just juice that's been fermented so it has like a much fresher quality to it than say a wine that you buy at the grocery store or something that has been mass produced in a factory with all kinds of additives.
0: Right on. That sounds delicious. Um, so you, so you do this internship and then from, then you spent time in New Zealand, uh, in that industry. And I'm just trying to pick back up with this timeline of, of, uh, yeah. the mega bell. <laughs>
1: Yeah, an old an old nickname. <laughs> um, so very it's very common for people who are learning how to work in the wine industry, especially people in their 20s um, mostly, to travel from hemisphere to hemisphere every year in order to work two harvests in one year. Because unlike beer, where you can kind of make it at any time, wine can only be made once per year mm. during the harvest season from August through November. It's
0: like... Kind um, of akin to, uh, you know, how surfers search for the endless summer. My cousin yeah. is a skier. He goes searches for the endless winter. But you vintners search for the endless autumn. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is like that. that. But, yeah, endless autumn. It's, it's actually really, I mean, I assume, well, endless summer sounds pleasant. But yeah. endless autumn is a really interesting way to live uh for years on end because your whole life is winding down from this kind of crazy time of the late summer and early fall where it's still really hot and Mm. um coming into like a more mellow indoorsy place in the winter and like places like the loire and, and new zealand where i've worked it was very cold, like in these it snowed where I worked in New Zealand. So it was like sometimes we would have snow days and it was so different from working harvest in California where it's basically ninety degrees yeah. during our entire harvest season <laughs> here. That's the way summer works. Right. Yeah, so so I did that life for a few years, moving every like you know, four to six months and just getting as much work experience as I could. And then in 2015, I moved to Santa Cruz to work for a different winery full time. Mm. And, um, that winery let me start my company there
0: in 2016. Wow. When you say let, uh, what, what does that, what does that look like? Um, like enabled or they were a part of the process yeah. or.
1: What I mean by let is that they didn't charge me the amount of money that it would cost to have your wine made at a at a facility that does this commercially. Like, there's lots of people who maybe have some land and they've got a vineyard in their backyard and they pay a winery to make that wine for them. Mm-hmm. Well, that's super, super expensive yeah. and... Um, this winery let me just make my wine there as part of like my compensation for my job. Ah. And it wouldn't wouldn't have been possible if I actually had
0: to pay for it because it is so outrageously
1: expensive.
0: Hmm. That's so cool. Are we allowed to say what this winery is?
1: Oh yeah, sure. Um, It's called Beauregard Vineyards.
0: Beauregard. I love that name. That's always been one of my favorite names. Oh my
1: God. Yeah, yeah. They're a they're a fourth. I think they're in the fourth or fifth generation now. Family in the Santa Cruz Mountains that have owned grapes forever and um, super small and family owned. And I was working full time for them for almost three years. Awesome. And...
0: Do they ever do a Beauregard Beaujolais? Well, great question,
1: Hobie. You you cannot, in fact, do that oh, because you got to be from the the region. <laughs> yes. Yeah you cannot steal French names
0: anymore. (laughs) Gotcha. Good to know. Good to know.
1: (laughs) But, um, the grape in Beaujolais is called Gamay and they could, if they wanted to, they could definitely do a Beauregard Gamay.
0: (laughs) Okay. Nice. Um, cool. So you've been working with, with this, this winery for like three years and, uh, What uh, can you take me to like that moment that you decided, like, did you already have this as a goal to start your own winery throughout this whole time? Or was there like a moment where something clicked and you're like, all right, I'm going to do this.
1: Um, It was something that I kind of figured out that I wanted to do when I was still in France um, because I was so inspired by the, the feeling of being at work there. And, Mm -hmm. and that's something that I've, really carried through margins even now in year five is like I don't want it to be just a job I want and I don't want to be miserable at work like I want it to be integrated into my life and to have it be something that like I look forward to going to do and I had had such bad experiences at most of the wineries and vineyards that I worked with. Um, not because I didn't love the work. I've always loved the mechanical labor of winemaking. I It's very interesting to me and I, I enjoy that type of work, but I was tired of being in environments where it was expected that I couldn't do it mm. or if I could do it, everyone was mad at me or whatever. Just like the feeling of competition and coldness and unwelcoming nature of wine production that I think not just women and minorities feel, I I think everyone feels that way, but there's something I like to say a lot is that women are judged on their performance and men are judged on their potential. Hmm. And, I felt that a lot in most of my wine making jobs where I didn't get the same opportunities for learning say the forklift as the guys that I worked with did that may have had less experience than me it just wasn't worth even teaching me in the eyes of like my managers because it's like oh she's probably not going to work in wine production for long like she'll either get married and have a baby or she'll work in wine sales where like women do better and um part of like starting margins was kind of like this fuck you to like (laughs) hey anyone can do this and it was something that really motivated me in the beginning of like hearing in my head all the voices of people who had told me that i couldn't do this for whatever reason and then
0: being like guess what like i own a winery now (laughs) you're gonna smash the patriarchy by smashing grapes (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. And it, it, <laughs> yeah. And that that type of kind of like negatively inspired motivation doesn't last forever. Right. Oh, it's super, sure. people- yeah. <laughs> And like and, and that went away and, and I had to find new reasons to to want to continue margins because because it is so hard to have a startup company like um, you really sacrifice a lot of experiences you might have in your 20s. Um, because you're basically married to a company. And in my case, um, I've had a bunch of jobs at the same time hmm. to be able to put myself through life financially. So I I was up until January of this year, I was working all the time round the clock for all of my jobs. And it's only this year that I've Increased my pay from three hundred dollars a month to a whopping seven hundred dollars a month, um, wow. which means that I don't have to work quite as much as I used to. But I I do look around and I see the things, the more personal life things that other people have been able to accomplish in their their twenties that I really sacrificed getting um, this company off the ground. Yeah, but. So, like, kind of my my new reason for wanting to continue it is not only because I love the wines that I make and I love this type of work, but I'm very excited about being able to employ, like, women and p- people of color and other minorities who would have, if they even got a chance to work in wine production, um, would have probably had negative experiences. Mm-hmm. And I definitely know what that's like. And I I really look forward to providing, like, an enjoyable workspace for people to learn, but that I didn't really get when I was in that place.
0: That's so cool. I, I'm I'm even more uh, excited. Um, I don't know if I've ever tried any margins wine and now, and I'm really, um, the more I hear about it, the more I really want to try it. And uh, how, how? just out of curiosity, how many employees do you have now? Oh, just me. Okay. Awesome. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I I think next year. So when you start a a wine company and you're just a normal person and by normal person, I mean, your family isn't millionaires or your family hasn't owned a winery in California for generations. um, When you're really starting with nothing, you become uh, significantly profitable in about year six or seven. Okay. So that's what I'm looking at. Uh, I'm in year five. Now and year six seems to be the year where it's going to be maybe worth it for me a little bit financially. Um, and I might be able to afford a part time employee. And uh, yeah, I really look forward to that because right now I do you know everything myself. And you know, some people might say, Well, you signed up for that, you started a company, and right. yeah, yes. I, yeah, I did start it. But like I said at the beginning, at the time I wasn't aware of what I was signing up for. <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> You're like, How many hats do I gotta wear? Yeah. yeah that, but that's really cool. I mean, that's it's such a uh, uh getting this vision of just this kind of badass rogue winemaker, you know, that you've been carrying this all on your shoulders for so many years and managed to to maintain uh and keep it going and keep growing it. It's very admirable and um yeah, really it's a, awesome. What uh, what was the first wine that you made officially for your company?
1: The first year, actually, I only made one wine. Mm-hmm. It, I made eight barrels of one wine, which was a Chenin Blanc because I was inspired by my time in France. And the grapes were from Clarksburg, which is about 10 miles south of Sacramento mm-hmm. on the Sacramento River. And I still work with that vineyard, and I've become very good friends with the fourth generation vineyard manager there. Mm. Um, and now, in addition to that, I farm one of my own vineyards in the Santa Cruz Mountains what? with the owner. And I um, farm it together. It's it's in his backyard, and it's it's two acres, and it's organic and that's That's what most of my time is spent doing um during most of the years farming that vineyard, and then I also buy from seven other vineyards
0: wow um the is it harder to make white wine than red wine or vice versa?
1: um no, I would say it's the same okay
0: okay what what yeah. uh now I've heard a number of different you know, uh, hearsays about the difference between the two varietals from like, it's, you know, the, the grapes being like, uh, green versus red, or that you just take the skins off for white. It, it, could you clarify that for me a little bit? I'm just, I still don't have a great concrete understanding of, of the difference between the two.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, and this is something that I remember feeling at the beginning of learning about wine was that it seemed so absurdly complicated like you could never really know it was just like shrouded in fog (laughs) And, and what I've learned as I've worked in the industry and um just drank more wines and and everything talked to more people is wine is really really simple but the marketing of wine has historically been very exclusive and purposefully so in order to make people feel excluded. And part of people feeling excluded is feeling like it's something that they can never learn. But it's not complicated. That's, that's just, a, it's just a way for gatekeepers to keep people out. Um, it's, so with, with white wine, uh, you just, you take, this is how it's most of the time made. The grapes come in, they're all these little bunches and clusters in bins. And then you dump the bin of grapes into the press and um, the press, there's different types of presses, but the most common one in California is called the bladder press. So it's a cylinder and it has a balloon inside of it that inflates so hard that it presses the grapes up against metal that has slats in it. Mm. And the juice is able to fall out of the slats as the grapes are being pressed up against them with the balloon. Hmm. So that is how white wine is made. Um, So that liquid that got pressed out from the slats, that becomes wine. And then the pressed off skins that are left inside of the cylinder with the balloon in it, there's no more liquid left in those and they just go to the compost most of the time. Gotcha. So, White wine, yeah, pretty easy. Like things can go wrong um, in the fermentation process always. But in terms of making the wine, it's really all in a day's work hmm. for white wine. And then um, red wine is red because it spends time on its skins. So if it didn't spend time on the skins where all the color is, it wouldn't be red. It would be rosé. Interesting. So, that's how rosé is made that same way that i was just describing white wine mm-hmm. except with grapes so that's why there's barely any color cuz the color or the grapes got squeezed right away so they didn't have a lot of time to soak up the color from the skins um, and then with red wine it we usually leave it on a, it its skins to ferment for like between 4 days and 2 weeks and that is the time when the wine actually becomes red because it's soaking in with all the skins that have the color in them.
0: Man, that's such a great explanation. Thank you. I like you've made that really easy to understand. (laughs) Demystified.
1: Demystified. Yeah. Yeah. One of my main goals, like, let's just call a spade a spade. Like wine is, wine is pretty simple and, yeah, there's a lot of regions and mm-hmm. there's a lot to learn, but it's the same as as anything else, and anything can be learned by anybody, you know. That's awesome.
0: Um, how many varietals do you guys now produce?
1: Um, yeah, I should, great. By you
0: guys, I mean you.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, just just me so far. Sometimes at wine fairs, when people say that, I will correct to them but uh I usually just wear a name tag that says hello my name is Megan sole owner sole employee and that gets the point across
0: nice i am the margins <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> um i'm trying to think i think last year i made 12 different wines and some of those are the same grapes done different ways so i would say i probably work with 10 different grape varietals and um, so my my mission with, with Margins, my company, is to focus on lesser-known vineyards and varietals that are, quote-unquote, on the margins. Mm. So that's how I figure out what varietals I'm going to use. Um, I try not to use a lot of grapes that most people have heard of before. I want to help people learn about new different types of wine in an accessible way. And if they are varietals that people have heard before they're from regions that people haven't heard of like clarksburg
0: cool that's awesome and uh do these so the um how like how wide does your sourcing range like what's where do you do you is it all do you try to go local is it from all over the world is it california
1: um, yeah, being on the Central Coast in Santa Cruz has definitely influenced um, the regions that I'm working with. The The closest vineyard I work with is in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Um, I work with three, two different vineyards in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and then a vineyard in the foothills of the Santa Cruz Mountains, and then um, a little bit in Carmel Valley, uh, a little farther south, and then a little bit in Arroyo Seco in Monterey mm-hmm. County. Um, and then the farthest vineyards I work with are in the Central Valley um, near Sacramento and Clarksburg and then in Contra Costa County right by Brentwood. And in the in the event that I end up going that far away, which is around four hours from Santa Cruz for Clarksburg, it's because I'm looking for a certain varietal that we don't grow on the Central Coast.
0: Gotcha. That's so cool that so much of it is like within like an hour of where you make it
1: yeah I'm I mean right now that's that's the ideal situation but in some ways and I'm sure many people in different manufacturing fields feel this way uh, like it almost makes you feel trapped because (laughs) you're like oh man like all the vineyards I work with are are in this area and for me it's like Santa Cruz is so expensive and Mm. even if margins ends up being successful it's very unlikely that I'm ever going to be able to afford like a long-term life or land in this area Mm. so you you know in the back of my head I'm like no maybe I'll go someplace cheaper at some point like the foothills or something which makes amazing wines and the land is affordable but then it's like the give and take of being way farther away from these coastal wine uh, these coastal vineyards that I've started working with. But I guess those are more like long-term plans and goals and, and you never know what's going to happen anyway. So it's just like every
0: day feels different, uh, with this business. So, so when in, in going back to like your early, uh, the early days when you, uh, where, when you first started selling your wine, what was like your main avenue through which you, you would do that?
1: Yeah, so the first year I sold most of the wine myself. Um, it it was really hard. Um, most So the way wine sales works is different wineries have a distributor usually that represents them. And that distributor has sales reps. And the sales reps will go into... Bars and restaurants and wine shops and grocery stores. And they will show the wines to the buyer at each of those locations. And that is what the buyers expect. And then coming in as me, the young woman who made this wine, um, it really just disrupted the process. And buyers did not appreciate it in most cases. I got a lot of, like, why are you here selling this? Why don't you have a distributor? Like, I don't want to talk to you about this. I want to talk to a representative. And I would always say like, but I made it. Like you should be so happy that you guys right. talked to me about it.
0: Yeah.
1: But, you know, at at the beginning when no one knows who you are and and in my case, like I didn't have a, a famous person in the wine industry like vouching for me. Mm. If I did and if I had had those connections, I think things have would have been a lot less difficult for me. <laughs> and a lot of young people that start their wine brands have a connection like that where they have an in in some way and when they start they already know that they're going to be successful because they're connected to whatever well-known person mm. and um i didn't even know that people really had connections like that when i started like i said i i don't know if i would have done this if i was <laughs> totally aware of what i was getting into because it is so much harder to just be solo and have no one vouching for you and like maybe there were people that would have been willing to vouch for me but I I'm a usually a pretty shy person and like I would never ask someone to do that Mm -hmm. and I didn't have anyone offering so I was kind of on my own there and um it was about a year of selling my own wine before I found a distributor that I thought would be a really good fit for my wines. And her name is, her company and name is Amy Atwood, um, in California. And I sent her a couple samples and then she ended up buying the <clears throat> remainder of the inventory of that first wine. And, uh, we've been working together for, uh, three years now. And that was, that was my first like sales experience in California. And now margins is in I think 10 different
0: States what? and that's awesome. adding more every year. That's, that's so cool to hear. Um, so, so w- would you ever do like, uh, like farmer's markets or, um, you know, uh, like wine groups, you know, how like some people do, I know like, uh, my buddy who, when he started Chanty Shack in Santa Cruz shout out mm-hmm. Nathan Zant, um, they would do like these, like almost like, uh, CSA boxes with beer where you could like sign up for the beer club and get like deliveries every month. Um, did you ever do any, any sort of programs like that or like booths at a, at a farmer's market or was it mostly just going face to face with these, uh, with businesses and restaurants and stuff like that? Um, Wow, I'm so
1: glad to hear that that worked out for them. So I I don't know the legal uh, rules for beer because they're under a different type of alcohol license. But the alcohol uh, licensing for wine is extremely complicated. And you actually cannot do like a CSA with wine unless you have a specific type of alcohol permit that I actually don't have. Mm. Um, Or I will have it by the end of this year, but I didn't have it when I was first getting started. So those things weren't like an option for me. And what I've, what I've done that's kind of in the realm of what you're talking about is I do a lot of traveling in a typical year during the spring and the fall. I attend uh, typically at least uh, eight wine fairs a year in different cities. And um, these are, are wine fairs, for natural wines where people buy a ticket and there's like between 20 and a hundred different winemakers there behind the table, pouring their wines and people go around to every table. And of course they're spitting. (laughs) Um, And you get to actually hear about the wines from the people that made it. And that occurs in like basically every major city in the U
0: S. That's so cool.
1: So that, that has been really good for getting word out there and then of course there's no substitute for just being uh, visibility and being on a shelf so the more that I got distribution in different states and people caught on organically by seeing the wines the better things have gone for me it just it it takes a really long time you know for if you don't have a marketing budget for things like this to just happen uh organically but they finally are you know it's been five years and things are starting to gain momentum of their own and I'm getting to hang back a little more in in that department which is really nice
0: that's so cool um yeah did did you uh in addition you know that in addition to finding the uh the distributor were there any like early uh you know partnerships with restaurants or other, other businesses that, uh, that were like notable or that, that like you felt like were important to your momentum as you, as you grew in those, those first couple of years.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, Swaff in Santa Cruz, uh, was the first wine shop to carry margins. Um, they've always been a huge supporter of me. Um, yeah, really, really grateful for like sticking around the whole time and especially at the beginning when when it doesn't mean anything you know you're just another just another wine label on the shelf mm-hmm. and then it's only after more people have tasted the wine where it becomes something more than that um so yeah Swaff is one of the early ones and then bay grape in in oakland was also a really consistent early supporter of margins
0: that's a great i'm, I'm glad you named that because my next question was literally like, how do I find your wine and, and where can, where can I find it in the Bay? Cause I'm definitely gonna have to pick up a bottle after this, uh, conversation.
1: <laughs> yeah. So at, at this point, the most likely spots to find margins in, um, like the East Bay in San Francisco, uh, I'll start with East Bay, uh, Minimo in Oakland, Punchdown in Oakland, Bay Grape in Oakland, and Ordinaire in Oakland. And then in San Francisco, Tofino Wines and Fig and Thistle Market are the most likely spots.
0: Sweet. Awesome. Do you have any um, any s- spots in Marin County as well where, where you can be found?
1: Um, I think the wines appear sporadically at Driver's Market.
0: Okay. Cool. Nice. And I'm going to have to definitely... Uh, take those notes down and put them in the show notes as well. Cause I'm sure people will want to be trying this after, after hearing you talk about it. Um, what was I, I wanted to ask you, um, is there like a varietal that you would consider like you, uh margin wines, like flagship, or is there like a particular one that's like your favorite to make or that you're like, is there one that you think is like the good, uh, yeah, like the flagship varietal or the, like the favorite, the favorite daughter of your, of your vineyard? Yeah,
1: um, definitely Chenin Blanc. Okay. So I work with all of these vineyards, but most of them are just tiny little bits, like one or two tons of grapes. Whereas from Clarksburg, I'm getting between this year, eight tons and in the future, maybe even double that. So I'm, I'm trying to have the wine that Margins is known for be the Clarksburg Chenin Blanc, not only because it was my first wine that I made and it's a really special partnership that I have with the vineyard manager there, but um, I love Chenin Blanc and I want more people to get to experience Chenin from California that's done in, in this style.
0: How would you describe the... Um the wine itself like the flavor and the bouquet and all that um
1: so clark's or chenin blanc in general is an acidic white wine so it when you're tasting wine there's really i mean there's lots of uh things that you can say that you smell their taste right mm-hmm. but the main mouthfeel things are like tannin and acid. So acidic is when your mouth waters, like you were eating like a sour candy Mm -hmm. and tannin is when your mouth dries up, like you bit into like the pit of a peach or something super bitter.
0: Mm.
1: So that's um, tannin is normally associated with uh, red wines, but acid can be in both. And I love acidic white wines and Clarksburg is a great spot to grow Shannon because Even though it's really warm there during the day, it does cool down quite a bit at night because there's a breeze coming off of the Delta with all the water right there. Mm. And cool temperatures help grapes retain their acidity. So I would say the Chenin Blanc from Clarksburg is an acidic white, and it has a lot of citrus notes, um, like lemon uh, and then white flour as well. And sometimes like a, a confectionery, like, baking baker's sugar type of smell to it
0: nice and what so so perfect for your social distanced summertime picnics by the lake (laughs) or by the river or at the beach um what do you like to pair it with when you have it
1: um i probably my favorite pairing i've had with it is um chicken with uh like lemon lemon chicken Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um with some clarksburg Shannon is just so good and um really you know and the thing about acidic white wines is that they're they can be paired with almost any food they're a really versatile pairing obviously you're not going to do like a steak with it um but most other meats and like you can drink acidic white wine with salad, and you don't really want to drink red wine with salad as much because it it makes both of those things not taste as good. And really, the goal with pairing wine and food is to bring out the good tastes mm-hmm. in in the wine and the food. Um, so, Shannon's really versatile for that.
0: That's awesome. I'm I'm a big salad guy, so I think I might have to uh, to try that pairing, and I'll let you know how it goes. Um, yeah. So now I'd, I'd, with your permission, I'd love to like pivot a little bit in our conversation and, uh, just talk about the vision for this winery that you're, that you're, uh, in the process of, of building and creating.
1: Yeah. Um, so I would say we're like 80% of the way there, which is a little stressful cause it's July 23rd and. Theoretically, I'll have grapes on August 10th, so I'm really running out of time here, but um, (laughs) (laughs) most of our permitting is through, and I say our because I'm actually going in on the space with a business partner who also has his own winery. We're totally separate wineries, Um, but we are friends from college. We met in the winemaking program there, and uh, we've been working together in the same facility in Santa Cruz for the last two and a half years um, that we shared with two additional people. And four companies in that small space uh, wasn't going to cut it this year. Everyone's growing a lot. Everyone has a successful um, brand and we've all really helped um, kind of float each other and and support each other like marketing-wise and referrals and, and just like being an ear for each other to like run technical winemaking concepts by. And it, it's a partnership that I, I didn't really want to lose. Like not only could I not only have my own winery financially at this point, like it's just not a reality, but I don't really want that. Mm. I like working. I do like working alone, but I like having someone around. I like the aspect of being part of a team even if it doesn't mean directly interfacing all the time. Um, So my friend and I, his uh, name is James and his company is called Flores Wines. Um, He and I found this space together and we have split the cost of getting all the equipment and building out the warehouse, uh, which is a project we've been working on for almost nine months now. And, uh, Hopefully, we get our county approval in yeah. the next uh, week. Um, but we we have all of the equipment on site and ready. We just we just aren't allowed to use it yet.
0: That's so. that's so exciting though. And now this space that you guys have, I, I think I remember you mentioning it's down in Watsonville. Yeah, it's in Coralitos. So Watsonville. You know, is is
1: in southern Santa Cruz County for folks that aren't familiar with the area. Um, it's it's like the lettuce capital of the country <laughs> and but it, it really encompasses quite a bit of area and there's all these little sub regions in Watsonville. So postal address Watsonville, areas Corlitos. Um it's kind of on the eastern side of the Aptos area.
0: Gotcha. Um back to the hills a little bit more. I lived in Aptos, uh, so I know that I know that area. Cor- uh, Coralitos is going to look better on the bottle, too. I think.
1: It's well, gonna... <laughs> sadly, uh, we—it's not a legal um, city, or it's not an official uh, city. It's not incorporated. It's going to say Watsonville. <laughs> okay. Well, hey, Watsonville is actually... pretty cool too. <laughs> it's better for me because my labels already say Watsonville and now I don't have to
0: go through the trouble of changing them all. So. There you go. Hey, there's a blessing right there, <laughs> you know, and you know, I'm, I'm always down with the uh, Sherlock Holmes connection of Watsonville, you know, so it, it, uh, uh-huh. you got yeah. that going for you also. Um, now this, this winery, are you going to have anything like a storefront or, a uh, um, anything like, customer facing in that regard. Probably not at this facility. Um, all of
1: that is is so much more complicated than anyone would know. It's just it defies common sense really. Yeah. <laughs> um so basically in order to have a storefront you you have to update everything to be in code with ADA, American Disabilities Act, which is um, obviously something that I support, but it's not something that's a financial reality for me to be able to like remodel bathrooms and build ramps and stuff. That's, you know, a, a half a million dollar at least project. So maybe we'll have a tasting room somewhere else one day that already has the ADA approval. Um, but I think what we really needed was a, a larger production site to be able to grow our companies and to have a long-term view of our companies as well. Like um, we're on a a five-year lease there, assuming we get our approval to make wine there, and then we have the option to renew twice. So this is really a a long-term spot for our companies. Mm -hmm. And as we grow, it might be the case that one of us wants to move out into our own space. And, you know, that's perfectly fine you know when the time comes we'll figure out who stays and who goes and you know like we'll just cross that bridge when it happens but for now like I'm looking at this long term put a lot of money and time into getting this up and running and it's definitely the most exciting thing that I've ever done and I haven't taken a lot of time to actually think about what it's going to be like because I don't want to jinx it yeah um but if and when it gets approved, it's going to be the best. Like, my <laughs> life is going to be <laughs> so much better Um, just to have control over my own space and to have the space to have, like, creative freedom to try new experience, uh, experiments and everything and right. to get to have employees that work in, in our space. I, I think that anyone who's an entrepreneur really eventually craves the um, creative control that having more space affords.
0: That's so cool. Um, kind of brings up a question in me and, and forgive me if this is something that you've already answered, but have you, uh, are you aware, are there like, like when I hear you say that, you know, something like having, a, um, you know, the, the, the storefront adds these incredible layers of com- complexity. Are there any, you know, entrepreneurs out there that are, uh, kind of providing that service for small winemakers such as yourself, like, like a venue to, to showcase and to, um, you know, expose people and, and to, to sell your wine at, is that something that is a reality in the, in the field?
1: Um, yes, but not for me. There are definitely taste rooms that are shared with several wineries that share like a common ethos. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know of any... Well, I guess I know of a couple in Santa Cruz, um, but but I wouldn't quite say they're the same thing that I'm thinking we would do. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I I mean, I would love to have a a shared tasting room. I can't actually even imagine... It, It seems very wasteful to me to have my own space that wasn't shared with people but I I do have much more of a community mindset in this way like I hate the idea of people coming in and like they only get to try my wine yeah yeah. (laughs) it was so much effort to even get that space and like space is so limited and exclusive and like if I got the opportunity to get my hands on a space and it was like a financial reality for me I would want to share that with other
0: people Mm. I like that um speaking of that, I think that we would be totally, uh, uh, remiss not to mention, um, like the connection that you have to some people down there that are also my friends, which is our, our lovely friends at fruition. And I know that you Mm -hmm. were telling me, you guys have kind of a special connection with each other with, with, you know, as being these young entrepreneurs.
1: Yeah, um, fruition brewing rules. They're actually quite close to this new spot in uh, Coralitos that we're trying to do. And that's one of the reasons, like, that's actually one of the things I think about, like, if this spot gets approved, like, getting to go there for a beer after work Mm. and, like, having that sense of community. Um, Yeah, so... Exactly. A- amazing story of young people who also kind of built something out of nothing and making incredible beers. and we are gonna do some collaboration. We've done some collaborations in the past, and we're gonna do more this year where they take some of my grapes that I've already pressed off, um, meaning the juice is already gone, but mm-hmm. the skins are still there, and the skins still retain a lot of flavor. and then, they combine that into various
0: beers. That's awesome. Yeah, they're Tootie and, and David are like so uh, adept at making sours. They make some of my favorite sours that I've ever had. I'm always love to try. Uh, you know, before they before they even launched their their brewery, I, I had there was many a, a fond evening where you know, they would show up with a a bunch of like tall cans and man, it was some of the most delicious stuff I've ever, I've ever had. (laughs) Yeah. So good. Um, can you talk a little bit about, uh, like, do you use, do you age your wine in in like barrels or what's that process look like? Um,
1: so at this point, yes, I age most of, all of my wine in barrels, just a couple of wines are in stainless steel barrels instead of oak uh, mm-hmm. barrels. But I use really, really old barrels that I hope is not imparting a flavor on the wine. Um, I don't like the taste of oak in wine. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, American palates do because it imparts a sort of perceived sweetness, even though it's not actually sugar. Um, but it tends to cover up a lot of the this juiciness flavor that I was talking about at the beginning, um, which is the flavor that I really like, like a nice, fresh flavor. Um, so my barrels are mostly older than 10 years, and they're really just a storage vessel more than anything. Okay. Um,
0: yeah, I was curious about how that, that, that comes into play with, you know, you hear people talking about the wood and the, you know... <laughs> how how that affects the, the taste or like it's a, some sort of a feature, but. Um. Yeah.
1: And, and in many people who make wine will disagree with this, but I have always seen that type of talk as a type of uh, gatekeeping mm. because it's just another thing to learn where you can't possibly learn everything. So for me, it's just like, you know what? Oak tastes like oak. Some of them might taste a little different, but, like, the average person is not going to be able to perceive that. And honestly, the average person doesn't care. So, (laughs) um, And that works in my favor because, like, a brand-new barrel that imparts a lot of oak flavor into the wine is around (sighs) $1,200. And I buy my used barrels for around $50.
0: (laughs) That's worth it in itself. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I got a, I got a, a, a question for you when you are going, like when you go to the store and you're looking to try like a new wine, what, uh, what sort of things do you look for when you're choosing, when you're choosing a, a, you know, a new bottle to try?
1: Um, so I now even still after working in wine for 10 years and owning a wine company, I ask the staff, which is something that every, Everyone should do and No one should be afraid or embarrassed to do it. Mm. Um, Number one, you shouldn't buy your wine at the grocery store. You should buy your wine at a wine shop. Um, Grocery stores, almost almost their entire uh, production on the shelves is owned by three conglomerate wine companies in Uh. the country that they are the same company with a whole bunch of different labels and sometimes they're even the exact same wine with different labels, Mm. uh, which is totally legal and those are factory wines made in bulk like if you're buying organic produce and shopping at the farmer's market you should not be buying wine from the grocery store there's a there's a lot of bad shit in there um so go to a wine shop doesn't mean the wine has to be more expensive there is plenty of affordable options but they're going to be much more thoughtful options and just tell the staff like a a couple of wines that you like or if you're not sure maybe you start with something as simple as i prefer red wine um (laughs) and then they'll guide you in a in a direction and um that's yeah that's still how i buy most of my wines
0: that's i'm really glad that uh that you just shared that with us because i I had no idea and uh it is it can be kind of daunting when you go in and because i that's usually what I'll do too if if i'm uh if I'm shopping I'll ask whether I'm at berkeley bowl or or wherever I am I'll like ask the employee who's stocking like, well, what do you like um yeah. but it is tricky, you know not having I wouldn't claim to have the best uh and most specific language for describing exactly what it is i like and and that even can change on a night to night basis um but but, like you said, yeah, sometimes. I think that is something that can be a little intimidating for people that aren't, don't consider themselves like wine uh, connoisseurs to like, even know like, what, what do I like? What, what are these words that describe that very unique experience of of a specific type, you know? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's totally normal to not know what you like until you tried everything. (laughs) <laughs> you know and that's going to take a really long time
0: yeah and it, and and i think viewing it as like a this kind of positive uh voyage of exploration you know rather than like a like, like you said there is this kind of gatekeeping element not just on the maker side but on the the um like the you know the enjoyer the consumer side too of like almost not knowing where to begin like there's so much uh you know so much there you know Mhm
1: Mhm Yeah and and I I think of how much more fun like my journey my wine journey would have been if, if I had someone saying this to me when I was living like instead I, all of the wine tastings I went to were such stressful situations where I was terrified of not knowing enough and it I I think it really hindered my ability to get super into wine. Like obviously I work in wine, but I am not nearly as into wine as like a lot of my peers are. Um, I like like reading and hiking and things that anyone (laughs) can do. And I I think if I had not felt, not had this like negative association with wine being so pretentious that I think a lot of people have, um, it it would have been a really positive thing for me and like it doesn't have to be pretentious it it can just be learning and, and and like I'm so envious of people who contact me which people do all the time like over a direct message on Instagram and stuff and say like hey I'm just like even over quarantine like I'm just getting into natural wine over quarantine and like I've tried all of these new wines in the last five months and like I love this this and this and like these are all the things I've learned I'm so excited and I'm really envious of their like positive experiences where they've just gotten to really explore um and i I like to share their stories because it can be fun like that
0: mm-hmm. Well, I'm excited myself uh, to to do just that, and you'll probably be getting some DMs from me in the uh, in the near future. Uh, you know gushing with with excitement about it um i'm a i'm a huge red wine guy and i'm just curious you know if any any do you guys make red wine and if you do is there any um type of varietal that you could point me to with with your label
1: yeah um do you make red wine in fact i make mostly red wine i only make two white wines okay um uh well, it really depends on what you like. The thing that I've been recommending lately just because it's it's new to, for me um is the Counois that I uh released in the spring. It's a red grape. It's called Counois. It rhymes with coon paws, like a raccoon. Okay. And it is native to southern France. Um
0: what is a how do you spell deep. Counois? Uh
1: C O U N O I S E. Nice. And um I, I feel like Kunoise is good for people who like really light reds and good for people who like really heavy reds because it has a lot of pigment and color, but it's nice and juicy also.
0: Mm. Okay. What's the how would you describe like the the flavor of it?
1: Um I think in in the notes that I wrote I said I don't know if you've ever had this dessert. It's where you have like really ripe strawberries and you put like balsamic and pepper on them. Mm. I've it's, never had that. But... It's so good. Um <laughs> and that that is like the medley of uh aromatic notes that I get with with the coonwas, at least the one that I made. Um it has that like really nice um fresh berry character mm-hmm. and then it has some underlying more complex notes of like black pepper and just a slight tinge of balsamic certainly not like a vinegar
0: character but mm-hmm.
1: uh, just like a little a little interesting
0: um little note of that does it make your tongue prickle you know like some some wines kind of kind of like prickle on your tongue a little bit
1: um
0: it's not sparkling so
1: it doesn't prickle in that way but i would say it prickles in the way of acidity
0: definitely do you know i've had this experience sometimes with wine where um it almost takes like a glass to like season my tongue and Mm -hmm. like the first glass might be a little you know I, i i might not even love it at first but by the second glass it's like it feels like my tongue has like been awakened And I can enjoy like a complexity of flavor that I just wasn't getting right away.
1: Yeah, um, definitely. Um, And then that could also be that um, wine is changing all the time too, especially uh, natural wines or wines without a lot of um, things added to them and chemicals and preservatives. They uh, have various compounds that are getting um, oxidized. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean oxidized like turning Brown, but just, uh, basically, wine is a, for chemistry nerds, is a constant oxidation reduction reaction going back and forth. And, and when the wine gets open, all of a sudden it has access to oxygen, which it hasn't had for the whole time that it's been in bottle. So all of a sudden, a bunch of compounds change, um, which takes a little bit. So maybe the first glass is one way, but after the wine has had some time to. In the air, it could be totally different. That's why people use like decanters. Um, It's not just for like a pretty piece of crystal to pour wine out of, Mm -hmm. it actually um, helps uh, start this oxidation.
0: Mm. Is that also like why uh, they have different shaped glasses for different kinds of wine? Like all these different wine glasses?
1: That does that matter, yeah, yeah, sure, but like who has that money to be buying a bunch of different wine glasses like if you just buy like a nice lightish weight glass um that's not too big of a bowl mm-hmm. but not as narrow as a champagne flute, but more narrow than bullish um you're gonna be able to get good aromatics um for almost any wine out of that, like. Mm-hmm. Are those like those types of glasses are, are fun and like they're special experiences, but often a wine glass that's nice can cost like $30 a piece. That's like an affordable one. So it's just not a reality for most people and right. you don't have to have a special glass to to drink the
0: wine. What What is the deal with those big bowl? Like, cause we have, you know, a, a motley collection of wine glasses at my house um, as does any home with a long list of, cereal residents but uh we we do have uh, a couple of those like kind of big bullish shaped glasses does that like i've always wondered like what does that do uh does that have some specific effect on on the drinking of the wine
1: um well it depends on how bullish they are if it, if it's like really a big like a goblet, then. Mm. That's probably not great, honestly. Um, It's hard to swirl in that shape, and it's usually pretty heavy. But if it's, like, a tulip shape, Mm -hmm. is what we call, like, a Pinot Noir glass, where it has a a pretty wide bowl, and then it narrows um, as it goes up, that is a great glass for um, channeling the aromatics into this, like, specific space, which is is what the... purpose of all of these different designs of
0: wine glasses are so it's holding the 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 gases that are released during the oxidization kind of in this like in the space between the liquid and the top of the glass is that the idea
1: yeah kind of like that so um alcohol is volatile mm-hmm. which means it can come out of solution uh which like anyone knows who's had a mixed drink like you can really smell that alcohol it burns your nostrils a little bit so with wine uh, um, even if it's low in alcohol when you swirl the wine you a bunch of those compounds uh, aromatic compounds are able to get lifted on the volatility of the alcohol and that's why you swirl and then so those aromatic compounds lift up and they get caught in that space and then you're able to like take a nice big sniff of them
0: mm. awesome <laughs> That's great. Well, hey, um, I am getting pretty thirsty. I might have to go grab a glass of wine now after this conversation. Um, Are there any like upcoming uh, things you'd like people to be aware of on the horizon, you know, other than this monumental uh, winery change, but any news from, from margins that we should be on the lookout for?
1: Um, so I release wine twice a year, once in the spring and the fall, and my fall release is going to come out at the beginning of September and people can find out about that by signing up for the mailing list at marginswine.com and clicking the mailing list tab.
0: Sweet. Now, does that mean like if I wanted to go out today, do you have, is there wine margins wine on the shelf right now?
1: Yes, there is. In some places, however, it got released in March, and that was a long time ago, and people have been drinking a lot uh, yeah. during quarantine yeah. so um it's it's easier to find when it's just been released, but it's certainly out there
0: nice um cool and and how can uh how can people find you and get into what's a great way for them to interact uh with your company and, and with you
1: um the best way is probably on Instagram at I'm at margins wine.
0: Okay. Great. Awesome. Um, well, thank you so much, Megan, for coming on. I really appreciate your time today and getting to learn about, uh, this journey and, uh, and your company. And it's, I, uh, I think I might have to try to find a bottle to bring on this backpacking trip. I'm, I'm leaving on, on Sunday. I might have to bring up a a bottle for the first night. (laughs) That would be awesome. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, Hobie for inviting me to talk to you about margins. Really appreciate it. Yeah, totally. And yeah. And, and maybe we can, uh, get you on it again in the future when, when the winery is open and running and we can talk about what that process has been like. Yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed. Yeah. I'm sending you uh positive juju, good vibes and, uh, and wishing you all the best in, uh, in this grand endeavor.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate
0: that. Awesome. Well, uh, well, be well and have a great rest of your week and um, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right. well there you have it. The saga. The legend. The tale. Margin's Wine. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I really want to try this stuff now. I have not yet gotten to taste it, but uh, it's high up on my priority lists i've called around to the local east bay spots and and i'm still trying to track down a bottle um so i'll check back in with y'all after i've had it but but also you know for all you wine connoisseurs and drinkers and just general enjoyers go get yourself a bottle of margins wine uh it you know you just heard it you know from her own words, it sounds like this is like the highest grade stuff you can get. And I love that it's all just naturally, uh, created and like the yeast. I mean, that was such a cool thing to learn that it's kind of like in the way that they do with sourdough. Um, they use the atmospheric yeast to, uh, and the yeast on the skins of the grapes to get the fermentation going. Um, Yeah, thank you so much to Megan for coming on, and I'm so excited to try your products. A little bit of housekeeping before I sign off. I will be out of town, as I mentioned in the intro, I'll be out of town next week camping with the fam. So there won't be an episode next week, uh, but after that I'll be back. I know it's been kind of sporadic for the last month or so. But I will be working hard to uh, get back at y'all with more steady content on a weekly basis. And uh, always, uh, if you have any questions, comments, guests you'd like me to have on, suggestions, um, I'm all ears. And the place to reach out is the Bartcast mailbox at gmail.com. Again, that's the Bartcast mailbox at gmail.com. That's the spot to throw me, uh, shoot me an email on if there's uh, things you'd like to see and, uh, hope you all have a really good week and that you're all out there following the light of your heart and opening your third eyes, uh, one love and, uh, may you all be able to, you know, open your chakras and enter avatar mode at your own discretion